Recorded live. Well, hello once again. This is Michael Adams, Nothing But The Truth. Once again, it's March 3rd, 2015. Now, if you notice, I've been trying to pack in a few shows here today because I got a lot on my plate later on this week. I go to the hospital tomorrow and deal with more issues with my multiple sclerosis. Then they got to take care of my son and all that, so <clears throat> we don't really have much time to do it. Anyways, we're going to read Chapter 4, All Roads Lead to Rome, from the book, The Beast of Revelation, Myth, uh, Metaphor, or Reality. Once again, I do not support the organization or belong to any kind of religious or outfit that has written this. If it is associated to a religious outfit. <clears throat> Simply just going to read... The information that's been gathered here, and uh, we'll learn more about the fourth and final beast. The tourist posters display a magnificent Rome, the famed city of seven hills, all covered with architectural glories of the past. Rome is a city of contrast. Ancient ruins and old buildings jostle side by side with a thriving modern city. More than 27 centuries have come and gone since its legendary founding at the hands of Romulus and Remus. During this long expanse of time, the remarkable city has played an unparalleled role in the history of the West, excuse me, Western civilization. Rome, the eternal city of power and intrigue. Nestled within the city of Rome itself is the world's smallest sovereign territory, Vatican City. Maintaining its own diplomatic relations with all the world's major powers, this minuscule city-state ruled by the Roman pontiff is a full participant in international affairs. The Vatican aspires to much more, however. It seeks to return to the center stage of world politics that it occupied for so many centuries. Let's return now to our story. As we've seen when Daniel 7 and Revelation 13 are compared, it is apparent that the ten horns, kingdoms, that are mentioned must have originated in the Roman Empire, which is the seventh head of the beast. So, Rome's empire, see where we go. Though Rome's ancient empire received a fatal wound with the death of the last emperor in AD 476, that was not the end of the story. The first three horns or kingdoms springing from the old Roman Empire, the Vandals, Hurleys, and Ostrogoths, were uprooted 
by Emperor Justinian at the behest of Rome's Pope. Justinian reconciled the proud and angry spirit of the Roman Pontiff and spread among the Latins a favorable report of his pious respect for the Apostolic See, as S-E-E, i.e., the papal office. That left seven horns, Justinian would heal the deadly wound. And uh, 554, and launched the first of six historic historical attempts which the papal sanctioned to revive and carry on the empire of ancient Rome. But since there were seven horns left, not just six, a seventh and final let me go up here, revival must be yet to come. Your life is to be profoundly affected by events yet to take place in the eternal city. The Lady of Kingdoms. Let's look at the Pope-sanctioned revivals thus far, with the conclusion of the Gothic Wars in AD 553, Italy was left in poverty and disorder. Rome had been besieged, starved, captured, and looted. Finally, the Byzantine armies succeeded in reconquering Italy and remnants of the Western Empire. Justinian, already the Emperor of the East, was now the restored emperor of the West. But how was he to govern this recovered territory? The answer lay in an alliance of church and state that has shaped the history of Western Europe ever since. Though secular authorities in the West had collapsed, the survival of ecclesiastical organization under the bishops of Rome, or bishop of Rome, appeared even to the emperors as the salvation of the state. In 554, Justinian, Justinian promulgated a decree requiring that fit and proper persons able to administer the local government be chosen as governors of the provinces by the bishops and chief persons of each providence. This healing of Rome's deadly wound is known in history as the Imperial Restoration. The emperors of Byzantinian, Byzantinium would continue as nominal rulers of the revived Imperium Romium or Roman Empire in the West from 554 until 800 AD. By the terms of Justinian's decree, however, the Rome popes 
took the real reins of government in the West, metaphorically sitting astride and riding the imperial beast. This remarkably parallels the prophecy of Revelation 17. The story of seven revivals is told here too, symbolized by another beast with seven heads and ten horns. However, it is important to note a significant difference between this beast and the ones described in Revelation 13 and 17. Unlike those, the beast of Revelation 17 is ridden by a woman. Notice what John saw. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of the names of blasphemy. Having seven heads and ten horns, the woman was arrayed with purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, and with the blood with the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Just who is this woman? First of all, let us see how the Bible uses the symbol of a woman elsewhere. Revelation 12 pictures a woman with a crown of 12 stars who gives birth to the child the Christ child, excuse me, a clear reference to Israel with its 12 tribes, each symbolized by a star. Ancient Israel, God's Old Testament nation or church, was pictured as a woman married to God. However, Israel and Judah often played the harlot with other gods and nation, national rulers. Their capital, Jerusalem, is represented as the same woman. Now, new, the New Testament church is the Israel of God. And spiritual Jerusalem above is called the mother of all of us. The true church is the woman throughout the remainder of Revelation 12. John calls her the elect lady. She is to marry Christ at his return as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Church and state will be united through him at that time. Meanwhile, the true church is not to play the harlot by being politically entangled with the governments of this world. She is not to commit spiritual fornication. In some premarital church-state arrangement, she is prophesied to remain a little flock, persecuted by the world. So the, the fallen woman in Revelation 17 is clearly a fallen church. 
with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication. Like an ancient temple prostitute, she grants favors to various rulers in exchange for their support of her false religion. Only the favors are now political. Rather than a persecuted little flock, she is a huge church, a great and great influence, which is doing the persecuting. Just how great? Decked with royal garb, she rules over peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. Most directly, the Roman beast. According to scripture, the seven heads of this beast are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Aside from meaning seven successive kingdoms, as the next verse shows, I believe that would be uh, Revelation 17, verse 9. The next one would be 10, I believe. He's talking about. Aside from the meaning of seven kingdoms, as the next verse shows, this also clearly points to the city of seven hills, Rome. Verse 18 says, The woman is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. The next chapter reveals the city to be Babylon, but its current manifestation from the time John wrote until now has been Rome. This, as, excuse me, as a continuation of Babylon, Isaiah 20, excuse me, 47 calls her the daughter, daughter of Babylon, the lady of kingdoms. This is clearly the same woman. Who else and what else could be meant but the Church of Rome? Is not this an exact parallel to the little horn of Daniel 7 that persecutes God's true church? What other church has conducted an inquisition through which multitudes, including God's faithful people, were slaughtered? Only the Roman church has presided over such butchery. The system is labeled Mystery Babylon the Great, a persecution, excuse me, a, my tongue won't work, a perpetuation of the the pagan Babylonian mysteries, now grown great and powerful. In the next chapter, we will see how it has mixed pagan elements with corrupted biblical themes to form mainstream Christian doctrines. Is there another Holy Mother Church that so perfectly fits the description of the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth? Only the Roman Church has ridden the beast. She first wrote it during the late Roman Empire and the days of Constantine and uh, Theodosius, excuse me, Theodosius. These names really are hard for me at times. Actually, most of the time. 
When she is pictured riding its seven heads, the Roman reveals rivals to be the Roman rivals beginning with Justinian excuse me the Roman revivals beginning with Justinian these seven heads or kingdoms uh, Revelation 17.10 correspond to the last seven of the ten horns of Daniel 7 Revelation 13 following the three uprooted by Catholic sanction, let's now examine the other heads that followed Justinian, the head of the Holy Roman Empire. The Holy Roman Empire. And I already read that, and I don't think I'm going to read that again. But anyways, it talks about Justinian, about Charlemagne, and let's go look at this little chart here. Because maybe that uh, might be a way of going about it. Okay, let's see what this is all saying here. It's kind of hard to follow. Is this some? Am I able to translate this without visual? Well, anyways. Okay, historical fulfillment. You so this is this timeline that talks about Rome. Let's check it out anyways. It says Neo Babylon Babylonian or Chaldean Empire, six twenty five to five thirty nine BC. Medo Persian Empire. 558 to 330 BC, Hellenistic Empire of Alexander the Great and its four divisions, from 333 to 31 BC, Roman Empire, from 31 BC to 476 AD, Constantine declares Christianity official religion in 324. Fall of Rome in 476 A.D. Kingdom of Vandals in um, A.D. 429 to 533. Hurley's under Odoacre, uh, A.D. 476 to 493. Kingdom of the Ostrogoths, A.D. 493 to 554. Roman Catholic Church under the Pope in the image of the Roman civil government. And that happens after that. Uh, Imperial, or during that time, I should say, right at the end of that time, around that time. Imperial restoration of the West under Justinian, 554 A.D. Um... Let me see, Carolingian Carolingian Empire, Um, Charlemagne crowned in 800. Roman Empire, Otto the Great crowned in 962. Habsburg's dynasty, Charles V crowned in 1530 AD. 
Napoleon's Empire, um, 1804 to 1814. Italy and Germany ending in Hitler Mussolini axis from 1870 to 1945. Last revival of Rome, Roman Empire, eight national rulers under a single leader. Okay, let's see where we can go with this. Of course, I'm bouncing back and forth with this book, which is obviously uh, not necessarily the greatest of ideas. Prophecies of our day and beyond. As we learn, the seven heads of the Scarlet Beast in Revelation 17 are seven successive kingdoms, seven resurrections of the Holy Roman Empire. We have already examined the first six. The coming seventh head is also described as the eighth and is of the seventh. It is the eighth Holy Roman system if you count the Scarlet Beast itself. That is the original. Here we go. Somebody calling me again. And it's never somebody who wants to talk to me. Now I'm going to mute this. Sorry for delays, folks. It's the same numbers over and over again, and they know I can't do anything right now. I'm in a hospital. <clears throat> Here we go again. Where are we at? Let's start over again. Um, as we have learned, seven heads of the Scarlet Beast for Revelation 17 are seven successive kingdoms. Seven resurrections of the Holy Roman Empire. We have already examined the first six. The coming seventh head is also described as the eighth and is the seventh and is of the seventh. It is the eighth Holy Roman system if you count the Scarlet Beast itself. That is the original Roman Empire of the days of Constantine as the first one. Seven heads here correspond to the last seven of the eight horns of the beast of Daniel 7 and Revelation 13. So what do the ten horns here in Revelation 17 represent? Verse 12, ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as of yet, and they will receive authority for one hour as kings with the beasts just as king or kingdoms are in interchangeable in prophecy. So the beast is the name of the coming revival of the Holy Roman Empire and of its um, Hitler, Hitler, uh, Hitler, Hitlerian, I can't pronounce that word, Hitler, Hitlerian leader. Uh, the individual referred to here. These uh, ten rulers are of one mind. They will give their power and authority to the beast. When these will make war with the lamb and the lamb will overcome them. 
Now, this might be where the United States government comes in, in Revelation 17, but it definitely has nothing to do with Revelation 13. So the time setting is yet ahead of us because these ten will fight against Christ at his return. Thus the ten horns mentioned here in Revelation 17 correspond perfectly with the ten toes of the great image of Daniel 2. Remember these ten toes, five on the foot of each leg, are smashed by Christ at his return to set up the final world-ruling world kingdom, the kingdom of God. The ten toes of Daniel 2 and the ten horns of Revelation 17 are clearly synonymous. They symbolize ten rulers who will collectively support and give their allegiances to the seventh and final resurrection of the Roman Empire. As we know, the legs of the image of Daniel 2 represent the Roman Empire divided into West and East. Bible prophecy focuses on the continuation of the Western Empire, the beast ridden by the harlot. But from Daniel 2, it is apparent that the Eastern leg has a part to play in the final revival. Eastern, the Eastern Roman Empire continued to be ruled from Constantinople until 1453, when the Ottoman Turks overran the city and killed the last emperor, Constantine the 11th. However, that was not the end of the eastern leg. Nineteen years after the fall of Constantinople, in 1472, the Pope performed a marriage ceremony between Ivan the Great, Duke of uh, uh, Moscovia, modern Western Russia, and Zoe, or Zoe, niece and heir to the last Eastern Emperor. Their marriage was of importance in establishing the claim of Russian rulers to be the successors of the Greek emperors and the protectors of the Orthodox, of Orthodox Christianity. Ivan took the title Tsar, i.e. Caesar. Thus, down through history, the Roman Empire has continued as two legs. There were two individuals claiming to be successors of Caesar. In the West, from the title was Kaiser. In the East, it was Tsar. The Tsars and the Kaisers are no more. Yet remaining are their empires, are numerous European nations that have their roots in the old Roman Empire, nations whose heritage is Greek, Slavic, and Orthodox, derived from the eastern leg of the empire, uh, those of Latin, Germanic, and Catholic heritages, heritage, derived from Western 
Roman Empire. From among these nations will ultimately arise ten leaders who will change the face of both Europe and the world. Interesting, and it certainly makes sense. God's word reveals that eventually these ten kings or rulers will unite. Daniel 2 shows us that they represent the end-time successors of both the western and eastern leg of the empire. Since there are five toes on the foot of each leg, it is surprisingly surprising how closely the east-west division of Europe of closely the east-west division of Europe today. I think it must be a word this maybe is. Anyways, as defined by the now uh, obsolete Iron Curtain, matches up with the ancient imperial division. The coming ten rulers, or their leader, will, will form the last resurrection of the Roman Empire, the final successor, uh, embodiment of Babylon. However, the former Soviet bloc nations that will probably be part of the beast, some will apparently break with the system before the end and join far eastern powers to actually fight against the beast, as we will see near the end of the booklet. What will be the nature of the final Roman Union? As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw, iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. It seems that despite all the work of globalists towards superseding national identities, the various ethnic and local rivalries will assure that this final empire remains loosely knit and short-lived. Yet while it lasts, it will be very powerful. So before the good news of Christ's return, there is bad news ahead. The final ten rulers will give their support to a coming union of church and state in Europe that will aspire to world dominance. Joanna Haller, a popular German historian who died in 1947, stated, in the memory of the German people, the old Holy Roman Empire lives on as a time of greatness and splendor that must one day come to life again. After a short interlude of apparent peace and prosperity, this system will plunge the world into hellish nightmare, into a hellish nightmare. Without God's intervention, 
utter destruction would result and all mankind would perish. But God will intervene by sending Jesus Christ back to the earth. The Bible reveals that dark days are before us. It tells us that those who remain will be compelled to receive the mark of the beast. But it also says that those who do will face horrible torment at Christ's return. Just what is the mark we will have to receive, that you will have to receive? What can you do about now? These questions will be answered in the next chapter. And I believe you already read that chapter. I don't know if there's anybody here. And if there's nobody here, which there isn't, I can say is that a previous show, a couple of shows ahead, I read it. Um, I don't know, maybe I should just read it again. Maybe it's just for me. Okay, Mark of the Beast, Chapter 5. There are perhaps no prophetic subject that has enlisted more conjecture or speculation that the Mark of the Beast, in addition to, of course, this can go along with uh, the series I've tried to do, Mark of the Beast, and didn't quite get to it. But anyways, here we go. Revelation 13 also mentions the image of the beast, the mysterious number of his name 666. It even mentions another beast. What is the significance of these mysterious symbols? In years past, all sorts of suggestions have been advanced to identify the mark. Back in the 1930s, some in America connected it with the Social Security card required by Roosevelt's administration. Others have seen sinister implications in the universal production codes read by electronic scanners in supermarkets. Still others have been suspicious on various identification cards, even fake ATM and credit cards. A number of Protestant evangelicals expect some sort of tattoo or implant computer chip to be foisted upon an unsuspecting populace. But all these wild guesses are just shots in the dark. We can't really understand any particular biblical biblical symbol unless we examine everything in Scripture uh, that Scripture has to say about it. So, image of the beast. We already read about that. Day of the Venerable Son, of course, he says that mysterious mark. Uh, Protestant churches came to uh, out of the Roman Catholicism, repudiated among uh, Catholic teachings. Unfortunately, Sunday worship was not one of them. From for though they often don't realize it, by continuing in a Sunday observance, the Protestant churches acknowledge the supremacy of the Catholic Church or the Bible. This is why the Church of Rome is happy to announce that it changed the day. Catholic uh, Monsignor Sigor wrote, 
The observance of Sunday by Protestants is an homage they pay in spite of themselves and to the authority of the church, the Catholic Church, plain talk about Protestants today. And I don't agree with this part, and I don't know if I'm going to read it. Because I feel that although Sunday certainly is um, the mark of the beast, a mark of the beast, if you will, I will believe that if you submit to Rome, the Roman Catholicism, um, that in itself you will receive the mark of the beast. If you uh, submit to the Pope, uh, and you know what, by the way, they have Saturday services, they have morning masses, they have all sorts of things. So if you can't make it Sunday, you go to another day. So Sunday's not really that important, at least to me it's not. What seems to be the more important thing is the fact that you're willing to submit yourself to Rome, the Rome, the Church of Rome, that you're willing to bow down to them, that you're willing to put them first, that you're willing to be obedient to them, that you're willing to follow their false doctrines or be in bed with them politically, financially, uh, religiously, whatever. Um, and I have a hard time buying into the fact that going to church on Sunday is the mark of the beast. I just do. Now, I understand it's Sunday, Sunday worship is all about the sun, blah, blah, blah. But the average person is going to church on Sunday. isn't even thinking about worshiping the sun. They're just going to church. So we have to really get grounded here. And even though the past might have been, and there might be people out there that do do that, I think if you actually just get baptized in the church, if you actually submit yourself to it, uh, if you do practice all the, the traditions, the sacraments, you partake of the Eucharist, all these things, you don't read the Bible, you don't recognize that Jesus, who Jesus Christ really is. You're, if you don't rec- if you submit yourself to the vicar of Christ, the man is in place of Christ, um, that's enough. The day has not much of a difference. It doesn't make much of a difference. Now, others will say, well, it has to be, and there's going to be Sunday laws, and they're going to make you do that. You know what? And in the day, you might be right. But I also know that in order to do that, then that makes it that uh, Roman Catholic churches, you know, they have Saturday Mass, and they have uh, morning Mass, they have, uh, you know, all sorts of Masses throughout the week. It has to be negated, and all of it has to be now Sunday. I could be wrong about that. I certainly can't. I look at uh, uh, the medieval uh, Roman Empire, Holy Roman Empire. They certainly made it to be the case. They certainly made you worship, go to church on Sunday. Um, and they certainly persecuted a lot of people who did anything otherwise than be obedient to the Pope. The Pope the bishopric and the hierarchy of the church. Um etc. But I think just actually being a member, actually just joining, is bad enough. And I think even if you look at her daughter churches, 
And if we ever get back to reading this thing about the connection between Roman, the Roman Catholic Church and Islam, they worship on Sunday, a Friday. And you think they're going to just worship on Sunday? Um, it's too simple of an answer to, to say the Sunday law is the mark of authority. It certainly is the mark of authority. Um, certainly represents the church rep, keep making itself above the Bible and Scripture. But attending church is not the same thing as keeping Sabbath. And with the Seventh-day Adventists, what they have done is they have Romanized the Sabbath, in my opinion. And in no way, what they're doing, do I see scriptural. Any more than if I saw some Pentecostal on Sunday do it. If someone can prove me wrong, it would be fantastic. Because I would love to be wrong. But when I look at the Sabbath, it doesn't talk about me burdening myself, going to a church, listening to a man on a stage regurgitate spiritual formation and exercises, barely speak uh, anything of Scripture, hardly ever use the King James Bible, and basically entertain me for an hour and make me feel guilty that I'm not giving them a buck. While I'm looking at and behind them, there is a glass figure of an obelisk. Somehow, none of that makes any sense. Somehow, the whole argument about Sunday worship, a mark of, it might be the mark of the Rome's the Church of Rome's authority, but nothing about um, it has anything to do with the Sabbath. And by the way, they have their mark on Saturday and every other day of the week. And Rome has always placated to its people and allowed them to worship other days. I know people in my life that go to church uh, every 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 morning in the Catholic Church. And by the way, I don't know any other churches that are willing really to do that. The devotion that the people in the Roman Catholic Church have is par excellence. There's nothing a devout Catholic. You can picture a devout Catholic to a devout. Baptist or quote-unquote Protestant or whatever, and devout Catholics, you know, outshine them. Their devotion is truly more than ours. I mean, I look at my own self, like, you know, trying to keep the Sabbath, and one of the things I've tried to do for a past month or so was gather with others and have Bible study that turn into two, three hours going over, you know, or an hour going over one chapter, at basically listening to the same guy over and over again, or two guys, two gentlemen. And it hit me like a ton of bricks, too. It's like, this is not keeping the Sabbath. This is actually not any different than actually just going to church. The only difference is the teachers that I had. He was an excellent teacher, I know a lot. But was I really resting in the Lord? 
Was I really just focusing on him? Was I really studying the word of following the Holy Spirit, or was I following the person who's leading the group? Truth of the matter was I was following the person leading the group, and I'm glad I'm no longer doing it. I'm glad that they disfellowshipped me because uh, now I can just get back to the basics and just see when it comes to the Sabbath from sundown to sunrise. Saturday, I can just rest in the Lord, read the Bible, hang out with family, turn off the t- uh, the Internet, uh, not want, you know, listen to anything else, give my mind a break, give my body a break, spend time with my son, just do simple things around the house, and not make it anything more than that. Now, it certainly would be nice if we had something similar to what the the Jews had in Jerusalem when they went to the synagogue. But in the synagogue, people were allowed to read and to comment, and people debated, and people grew in the scriptures, one way or the other. But I don't believe for a minute that that what today consider was the same thing of what you see in a Seventh-day Adventist church, and then in day eight, from what I've experienced in a little group thing that we were doing. Um, I could be all wrong, but as far as what I've seen with my own eyes, as far as the Roman Catholic Church goes, as far as the Seventh-day Adventists and everybody in between, to me, there's not much difference between them except sacrimonial and tradition things, but at the end of the day, it's all awfully Romanized. People like to say it's been paganized, but Rome at its core is pagan. And what we see in the churches, certainly, and it looks and smells awful like Rome. And on top of that, we're at a stage in, in, in time where although there are supposed to be elders that are called and chosen God, how do we know that at this point when these elders are basically teaching whacked-out doctrine? Uh, Every one of them, every single church is at this point. They're being elected, and they certainly are acting more in line to what Rome, the Romish churches, um, and that which we read about in this book, so I don't know where to go as far as the church. I don't know a church that actually preaches properly Daniel 70th week. I don't know a church that teaches properly uh, Dan, uh, Matthew 24. I don't know anybody the church that actually merely teaches the Ten Commandments. I don't know anybody in a church out there that teaches uh, Revelation 13, probably. I don't know. 
this might be the closest thing to a church I'm going to get. I can tell you this thing. If I have to go to a church and listen to somebody for an hour drone on to some pre-rehearsed sermon with a half a dozen scriptures and pushing some story and fairy tale, And in the end, all of this is about morality, and there's no meat or substance as far as Scripture goes. That's a fellowship I don't want. Nor do I feel that man deserves my two cents for my wallet. Nor do I believe that he's a man inspired of God. What do I do? Where do I go? The only place I know where to go is the Bible and prayer and to then go and research as much as I can and, and find different folks' opinions I, 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 and put the pieces together the best I can. Um, you know, there's, um, as I demonstrated reading this book, there are Sabbath believers who don't buy into the fact that the United States government is the image of the beast. And the only problem I find with most of folks who are quote-unquote Sabbath believers is they turn the Sabbath into, they've Romanized it and turn it into a, a man-made religious experience. And I don't think they're doing it uh, just being disrespectful to God. Um, I think that they mean well. And I don't think that the reason why the Reformation failed is because they didn't keep the Sabbath. I think the reason why it's failed. First of all, it's got loud at the fall. And secondly, I believe it's because, well, look how difficult it is for any of us to agree upon anything. See, the difference between God and God's way and the serpent and Rome's way is that God gives, allows us to have freedom of choice. Whereas the Church of Rome rules with an iron fist. It demands its um, laity, if you will, to be obedient to her, period. And history is shown throughout and over and over again when people get a little too lax when it comes to Rome, she brings them back in line. Now, with God's children, who are trying to follow God's way, um, it just seems to be a big, it, it doesn't look like the things of this world, does it? It's very difficult for us to unify. It's very difficult for us to stay together. I think it's important to be that way. I think in order for us to grow, we have to grow a lot of the time that I've grown, if I'm honest, 
has not been with others, but on my own. And I would venture to say that most of the people that I know in my life who are in similar situations grew their most on their own. And that's just the way it is. Now, I'm talking about growing in the Word of God. Now, people argue, say, well, how can that be? You need fellowship and you need to interact with people and go through all the bumps and and bruises and all that kind of stuff. True, but if it's at the expense of the Word of God, then it becomes quite questionable. And then it becomes more of a, I'm some kind of perfecting of myself. In other words, excuse me, by hanging out with all these people, disagreements and all that, somehow if I learn to be more loving, accepting, tolerant, all these things, somehow I will personally grow and mature. Um, But am I? In those situations, never that I grow in the Word of God. Even this uh, opportunity that I've had with this breakup, for me, it helped to solidify uh, Revelation 13, that it has nothing to do with the United States government, and that it has everything to do with the Roman Empire. And then it's talking about the pagan Roman Empire and the you know, papal Holy Roman Empire. And that the papal Roman Empire is, the, is an image of the pagan Roman Empire. I can accept that. I can embrace that full-heartedly and feel good about it and not feel like there's there's something a little missing here. So, yeah, I grew immensely because of the breakup of the fellowship. So, and I imagine they feel they have gained whatever they feel they've gained and have to respect that knowledge jazz. So, Anyways, in about an hour and 20 minutes, James Japan will be on. That gives me a little chance to have a break. God bless and take care.